this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. All right, so we're in year six of these introductions that we, you know, the way we open the podcast. And in that time, we've done episodes on discrimination against trans Americans, episodes discussing child labor laws, episodes on immigration, episodes on book bans, and how they target queer and black literature in particular, episodes on Texas and Florida and how they suck, and uh, uh, episodes on abortion, mass incarceration. And I think we've got one episode that will gather all of these things together and rule them. Okay, podcast Sauron, lay it on me. Uh, I am not Sauron in this uh, scenario. The GOP is Sauron, the eye of Sauron ruling everything. And today we are talking about the GOP's war on children and what that means for the broader uh, society. And because that's what we think they're doing. There's a big umbrella that's going to fit a bunch of issues. and, And it begins with the way the GOP is trying to control the way that we talk to kids. Well, if that's the umbrella, I would very much prefer to stand in the rain. <laughs> is it is it even going to rain anymore? I don't know. Uh, it's actually raining quite a bit here. I bet most of the 73 million children in the U.S. would want to join you outside of that GOP protective umbrella. The GOP's actions over the past several years have been bringing children to new levels and kinds of precarity. And it's not an area in which I was looking for this level of variety and invention. Yeah, it's... um. You know, it's listeners, you, you know how we do it. Like these headlines aren't great. And frankly, many of them really tick us off. But we do have on the bright side, there is a bright side. We do have absolutely the best writers here to discuss them with you. So with us today to discuss the GOP's smorgasbord of horror for kids in her first appearance on the show is my friend Celeste Ng. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for asking me on. We are thrilled to have you joining us. Uh, Celeste is the number one New York Times bestselling author of Everything I Never Told You, Little Fires Everywhere, and Our Missing Hearts. She is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Guggenheim Foundation, and her work has been published in over 30 languages. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so just as a little context for our listeners, I invited Celeste to be on the show after I read about Ron DeSantis pushing more anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation, specifically legislation that would give the state authority to take emergency custody of children, quote, threatened with receiving gender-affirming care and justifying that by classing that care as, again, quotes, physical harm. So, of course, when I contacted you, I was thinking of Our Missing Hearts, your most recent book, which is narrated by a boy, Bird Gardner, who is raised by his father and without his Chinese-American mother for political reasons. In the novel, you mention a specific and, to be clear, fictional law that jeopardizes Bird's family, PACT, or the Preserving American Culture and Traditions Act, although I could imagine, honestly, that act being passed in several states in America. Um, It has three pillars that are pertinent to our discussion about the GOP's war on children. I wondered if you could start off by reading a passage um, that outlines and talks about that act. Sure. Um, So this is a passage from pretty early in the book, and I'll just set it up quickly. Um, As you heard, uh, the main character is a young boy named Noah. Uh, He goes by Bird. That's sort of his name of choice. And he's grown up without his mother for the past few years. She's left. He doesn't know a lot about why she left the family, only that um, there's there's something strange about her disappearance, and they're, they're not supposed to talk about her anymore. 
And he's also got a friend named Sadie. Um, Sadie is a child who's been removed from her parents' home by this law pact. And because they're both sort of outcasts, they both are missing parents, um, they're sort of drawn to one another. And in this scene, Bird starts to understand a little bit more about how this law pact, which has been in existence for his entire life, actually is influencing both his life and Sadie's life in, in ways that he hadn't expected. At first, it had been just a phrase, like any other. Not long after his mother left, Bird had found a slip of paper on the bus, thin as a dead butterfly's wing, in the gap between seat and wall, one of dozens. His father snatched it from his hand and crumpled it, tossed it to the floor. Don't pick up garbage, Noah, he said. But Bird had already read the words at the top, all our missing hearts. A phrase he'd never heard before, but that sprang up elsewhere in the months, then years, after his mother had gone. Graffitied in the bike tunnel, on the wall of the basketball court, on the plywood around a long-stalled construction site. Don't forget our missing hearts. Scrawled across the neighborhood watch posters with a fat-bladed brush. Where are our missing hearts? And on pamphlets, appearing overnight one memorable morning, pinned under the wipers of parked cars, Scattered on the sidewalk, caught against the concrete feet of lampposts. Palm-sized, Xeroxed handbills reading simply this, All Our Missing Hearts. The next day, the graffiti was painted over, the posters replaced, the pamphlets swept away like dead leaves. Everything so clean, he might have imagined it all. It didn't mean anything to him then. It's an anti-pack slogan, his father said curtly, when Bert asked. From people who want to overturn pact. Crazy people, he'd added. Real lunatics. You'd have to be a lunatic, Bird had agreed to overturn pact. Pact had helped end the crisis. Pact kept things peaceful and safe. Even kindergartners knew that. Pact was common sense, really. If you acted unpatriotic, there would be consequences. If you didn't, then what were you worried about? And if you saw or heard of something unpatriotic, it was your duty to let the authorities know. He's never known a world without pact. It is as axiomatic as gravity or thou shalt not kill. He didn't understand why anyone would oppose it, what any of this had to do with hearts, how a heart could be missing. How could you survive without your heart beating inside you? It made no sense until he met Sadie, who'd been removed from her home and replaced because her parents had protested pact. Didn't you know, she said, what the consequences were? Bird, come on. She tapped the worksheet they'd been given as homework. The three pillars of pact. Outlaws' promotion of un-American values and behavior. Requires all citizens to report potential threats to our society. And there, beneath Sadie's finger, protects children from environments espousing harmful views. Even then, he hadn't wanted to believe it. Maybe there were a few pact removals, but they couldn't happen much, or why did no one talk about it? Sure, every now and then you heard of a case like Sadie, but surely those were exceptions. If it happened, you must really have done something dangerous. Your kid needed to be protected. From you and from whatever you were doing or saying. What's next, some people said. You think molesters and child beaters deserve to keep their kids too? He'd said this to Sadie without thinking, and she went silent. Then she wadded up her sandwich in a ball of tuna and mayonnaise and smashed it into his face. By the time he wiped his eyes clear, she was gone. And all afternoon, the stink of fish clung to his hair and skin. A few days later, Sadie had pulled something from her backpack. Look, she'd said. The first words she'd spoken to him since. Bird, 
Look what I found. A newspaper, corners tattered, ink smudged to gray, almost two years old already. And there, just beneath the fold, a headline, Local Poet Tied to Insurrections. His mother's photo, a dimple hovering at the edge of her smile. Around him, the world went hazy and gray. Where did you get this, he asked, and Sadie shrugged, at the library. Thank you so much. When we were emailing about this before, you were you mentioned to me that hostility towards trans children was one of the things on your mind as you were writing. And the third pillar of PACT is protects children from environments espousing harmful views, is justifying separating children from their parents under the guise of protection, which is really exactly the same rhetorical strategy as the anti-trans Florida legislation we mentioned earlier. And I wonder if you can talk a bit more about the GOP's attacks on trans children and their parents and how they influenced your portrayal of the state's treatment of families um, and specifically children in the novel. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Yeah, I should say that when I was writing the novel, a lot of the anti-trans legislation hadn't passed yet, but it was kind of in the offing. And I think you could you could see it if you were paying attention. There were a lot of um, sort of concerned citizen kinds of uh, laws being proposed that, you know, you, we have to protect children from books that depict homosexuality or that depict things. Um, I think when I was writing this book, the term groomer hadn't even entered the sort of public consciousness. But there was a lot of that sentiment of this idea that children somehow need to be protected from the possibility of being queer in any way or from queer people in society or the fact that queer people exist. Um, and so when I was writing the book, I was sort of looking at the news and I was pulling together a lot of things that were currently happening, book bans or, um, you know, this sort of nascent movement towards criminalizing all kinds of um, basically anything that has to do with trans people existing. And I was imagining what if we took that and we made it a little bit more obvious even in the book. Um, I talked about it as turning the volume up. And so it's exactly what you describe. It's this idea that parents who are doing things that the government or certain aspects of society who are in control don't like can um, be charged with endangering their children, essentially. And that's what we're seeing right now in Florida and parts of Texas and unfortunately in other places, this idea that if parents are affirming their children's gender identity in any way, that somehow they're harming their children. And that's grounds for the children to then be taken away from those parents. And to me, that's that's a really horrifying development and one that I, I really wish the book were moving farther away from reality rather than the other way around. We did an episode early on in, in this show's run called The Authoritarian Playbook that I keep an eye on. And in a way, reading your novel, I felt like it was an imagining out of how an authoritarian state would be created in America. And and obviously, one of the ways is through, it, one of the excuses, right, is this protection of children. And then that is an excuse for re-education, right? So it's very important in your passage that Bird doesn't remember a time before this act, right? And you realize, oh, there are people who don't remember a time before the Patriot Act, for instance, right? Which happened during 9-11. Um, and so we've done a lot of episodes in the show talking about how attempts to ban books and, you know, have targeted books with LGBTQ themes as well as black writers. 
And this is another form of information control, right? Making it so that a certain understanding that if younger people don't have access to information, they won't know what they're missing. Um, I wonder if you could talk about the way that book bans, you know, Im impact children and, and, and their role in your novel. One of the things that I did while I was writing this book was I was looking a lot at history and I was looking at the past uh, instances in which we had book bans, in which we had laws that were restricting all kinds of individual freedoms. And I realized how important it was to know that these things have happened in the past, because if you know that, you're aware that there are these patterns of history and maybe you have the chance to break out of them. If you don't know that, if you have forgotten that information or if that information is not available to you, you basically have no way to sort of prepare yourself and you have no way to prevent yourself from just repeating these same mistakes all over again. And this is what strikes me about the book bans. The things that I think are getting banned a lot right now, as you say, anything that has to do with LGBTQ plus topics or anything that has to do with black history, for example, they're kind of ways of just erasing parts of our history and parts of our society and if you don't know about them, you don't have any way of preventing those groups from, you know, being persecuted again in the future. And that's what's sort of scary to me about it. I started thinking about this boy in the novel who doesn't know anything about the recent history. As you say, he's grown up with this law pact and he thinks that's normal. Everyone, everyone around him seems to be fine with it. That's always how it's been. And one of the things that he becomes aware of through the course of the book is sort of the larger context of history and his life. And as he starts to realize that actually there's a lot more to his history and his family's history and the history of their whole society than he had been taught, um, he realizes that, you know, the little frame he's been looking at the world through, which is, you know, maybe only so big. And I realize this is a podcast. So you can't see me holding up my hands. But, you know, little camera view there's actually a lot more picture outside of it. And that's what I think about when I think about banned books in our society. They're ways of giving children context. They're ways of letting them know about parts of the world that are out there, about things that have happened, so that they can actually be more informed. And to me, that's that's always a good thing. That's always a way of kids making better, I don't want to say choices, but understanding better sort of what the world around them is actually like. One of the creepiest things I think about the book bans in the novel for me is the way that they're not actually, they're not really announced. They're, they're actually silent. They're, you know, the books are missing from the shelves and he doesn't necessarily know um, until he goes looking for um, a book by his mother, the poet Margaret Mew, um, who, you know, she departs his life and also her book vanishes from shelves and he kind of, he goes wandering looking for it and, and, and it's not there. And it's not like there's an announcement, like no one may read our, you know, this collection of poetry. Um, and so I'm curious about the ways in which you you announce and don't announce this kind of malevolent bureaucracy in the story and how it passes from being something like a law like pact that is codified into just being like pernicious tradition. Yeah, that was an interesting thing to learn about, too, that I always think about book bans as being there's this forbidden list. Right. And if all the books are on that list, you take them off and everyone knows which books are not there. But the truth is that a lot of times when books are um, essentially banned, it's done in a much quieter way. And we're seeing that with some of the library bans now. There are actually books that are being removed um, just uh, they're preemptively, I guess, is, is the way of saying it, that librarians are concerned that having these books on the shelves will open them up to hostility, will open them up to, vi to violence, which is, in fact, happening. And so they remove the books from the shelves before anyone makes them. And um, Whitney, you were talking about the authoritarian playbook. I think that's one of the the 
hallmarks of it, right? You get people to obey in advance. Um, you get people to censor themselves, essentially, and not say things because they're concerned about the kinds of trouble that they'll get into. And that's a frightening prospect, too. It's scary enough if there's the idea that there's a list of books that have been removed. But if people are starting to remove those books just on their own, just as a way of avoiding trouble, it's understandable. But it also means in some ways that the people in control can say, oh, we're not doing it. People are just choosing not to do it. One of the things I looked at was the way that censorship tends to happen in China. And a lot of times it happens in this sort of softer way. There's the idea that you're sort of pressured in a societal way to not talk about certain things because it's going to make trouble or it's going to um, open you up to maybe ramifications at your job or ramifications in society. And so people just don't do it because it's easier than opening yourself up to huge risks. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, you know, we had, I mean, Hodgin's most recent novel is very much about that. And um, for our listeners who might not have heard that episode and want to kind of think more about it, I would maybe point you back in that direction. And what you're saying is also putting me in mind of, of course, the the recent, I can't even believe that there's a debate about this, but like the, the Florida um, educational standards regarding the discussion of slavery and the the claim that slaves and slave persons like learned skills that could be applied for their personal benefit, which is, of course, ludicrous. Slavery had no personal benefit. And there's been a lot of protest about this and, you know, this kind of deep history that that gets erased. Like, for example, um, you know, if you don't teach about enslavement in the United States, when you think about the separation of children from their family, of course, black children who were enslaved were often separated from their parents. Um, you know, there's a long history in this country of Native American children being separated from their parents and being sent to white families um, to, quote unquote, be civilized. And these are longstanding methods of, of state repression. And one of the things that I, um, you know, really appreciated about your novel you portray the Asian American community as a target of intense xenophobia, which, of course, in recent years, like post-pandemic, it really has been, and also vulnerable, to, of course, to this kind of separation, which is which has been cyclical um, in U.S. and in world history. And watching Bird and his parents resist that um, was very satisfying to me. And I was just thinking about um, how you portrayed anti-Asian sentiment in the book, but also the way that you were writing against kind of the stereotypes of Asian American conformity and obedience and kind of, um, I don't know, even what I can think about in, within my own community of sort of the, the notion that you, you should keep your head down and stay out of trouble. That's very much the tradition that I was raised in. My parents were immigrants from Hong Kong, and they moved to areas where there were very few other Asians of any kind. And we were always among the few Asian faces in the area. And I think because of that, there was a lot of, um, you know, that feeling of, like you say, kind of keep your head down, kind of just do your best to kind of blend in, like don't attract attention to yourself. And one of the things that's changed, I think partly it's generational and, and partly it's it's the time period we're living in, there's a sense of now sort of being more open about your Asian identity and being less, um, less inclined to sort of assimilate or blend in. And I don't blame my parents for kind of raising me in that way of being like, don't attract attention, because I think for them, it was really a safety thing. I think back now on my childhood and I think about how vulnerable they probably felt with me and my sister. And so saying things like, you know, don't don't attract attention to yourself. You're making too much noise on the bus, right? Don't do that. 
in a lot of ways, you know, I used to think that was just them being um, Asian, for, for lack of a better term. I was like, oh, that's just how they are. They want me to behave and be, you know, very docile. And But actually, I think it, a lot of it was a reaction to the environment that they were in. You know, this was rust belts in the 70s and 80s. This was around right around the time of, for example, Vincent Chin's murder, um, in which I think, you know, they kind of realized that just having an Asian face can make you very vulnerable. And, you know, I'm sure they had been aware of that for a long time. But that idea um, that's kind of permeated the at least the East Asian community for a long time of like, you know, just kind of don't make waves, right? Like do a really good job so that nobody can fault you for anything and just try not to get in any trouble. I think that's been... Um, that's been the mode that I grew up in and a lot of people of my generation. And in this novel, Bird feels some of that pressure too. He's gotten that from his parents. Uh, his mother is a Chinese American and his father is white, but at different times in their life, they both sort of say, you know, just kind of try to fly under the radar, like stop attracting attention to yourself. If you behave, people will leave you alone, right? There's that sort of faith in the, the system. And one of the things that Bird's mother and then eventually Bird learns is that there are times in which you you have to be willing to sort of take a stand, even if it attracts attention to you, that there are times that it's going to be worth it. And that if you keep your head down, in some ways, you're, you're becoming a bystander, you're enabling other things to happen. And I didn't go into the book wanting to write, you know, a counterexample, but it's something that I have thought about a lot in my own life as an Asian American woman and then as a parent of a mixed race kid. And both the dangers and the benefits of sort of standing out in a way and of trying to speak up, um, it, it, it opens you up to things, but it also in some ways can become, um, it can become sort of a rallying cry or it can at least become a, a little, little moment of pushback when it feels like no one is paying attention. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. You know, the the interesting thing for me that also is thinking about this in the context of the of the father who keeps, you know, encouraging Bird to just be quiet. And it's, it's difficult to watch him do that. Right. You understand his uh, motive, but also he seems to be erasing the mother, you know, in this sort of painful way. And, you know, the thing, the problem with the logic of the thing to remind everyone when I was thinking about reading the book is like, yes, OK. This individual group in the, in the novels of someone of Asian American descent or in real life that we're talking about LGBTQ kids, right? Um, marginalized groups, the how the authoritarian playbook is to start with them, right? To teach people that, okay, this is okay to erase this group or to make them invalidated and to basically erase their history. But then once you've taught people to do that, you can erase any history. You know, you can get rid of the Scots as well or whatever, you know, the blue-eyed people in Kansas City who are Democrats can all be bad too, you know? I mean, that, that that's the thing that people need to be aware of, you know? And, and for instance, you know, um, anti-trans legislation is right now not the only real-world attempt that the GOP is like to crim making to criminalize parents who are supporting their children or, to, or, or in general to criminal, to make society a way of repressing certain behaviors. Like in Texas, there's that, the law that, um, allows people to report other people who are involved in abortions, right. And make them criminals. Um, that also happened in Nebraska where a woman, uh, and a mother and daughter were recently prosecuted when the mother aided the daughter in getting an abortion. Somebody tipped them off, um, because Facebook turned over their messenger chats. I wonder if you could talk about that and the way that that plays into the novel as well. 
Yeah, that idea that society can be used as, as an enforcement mechanism was very much on my mind. Um, you know, personally, I think some of it comes again from feeling like I'm visibly other. And so I feel that I'm often being watched in certain circumstances. But that law that you mentioned in Texas was uh, one of the things I was thinking about. I think it came up while I was writing this novel, that you were not only allowed to report on people that you thought might be trying to access abortion, but in fact, you were encouraged to do so. And in fact, if I'm remembering correctly, I think there is a reward. There's a financial for, incentive. A there's a bounty. Yeah. Exactly. And that idea, again, um, you know, you, you start with the, the phrase that's become ubiquitous since 9-11, right? If you see something, say something, which at its heart, you're like, oh, yeah, we should be watching out for each other, right? There could be a really positive way to look at this. And the idea that we are in a society together and we watch out for each other, that's a nice thing in my view. But it very quickly can shift into something that becomes quite menacing because you it's not hard to find examples of cases in which people call the authorities um, on behavior that they don't like personally, but that they have no reason to be reporting. And it often has really bad consequences. And usually they're for people who are already in groups that are persecuted. You think about the case some years ago now where there was a man who was, um, they called police on him because he was bird watching in Central Park and he happened to be black, right? Or even I'm talking to you from Cambridge. This is many years ago now. Obama was still president, but there was a case oh, when the yeah. police were called on a black man who appeared to be trying to work his way into a home. And it was Henry Louis Gates Jr. trying to enter his own house. I remember The key this. got stuck. Right. You know, so those are two very high profile examples. But you think about how often this happens all the time. If people see something and they say something it often reflects their values, which may not be, they may have their own sort of unseen biases. We all do. And when you start thinking about that on a society, societal level, as you were saying, Whitney, um, it means that the, the whole sort of societal norms can be used as sort of this pressure to be put on parents or anyone really to act in a certain way. And so it's like, well, if your neighbor doesn't happen to agree, are they going to call and say, I think that my neighbor might be, um, my, my, my neighbor might be helping their kid learn about birth control or, you know, th there's this sense in which everyone is now watching you and you're being monitored. Then the state doesn't have to do it anymore. Society is doing it for them. And that's, yeah. that's right out of that authoritarian playbook again. I mean, yeah. you practice authoritarianism on the most on smaller groups and the most marginalized groups and people get used to it. And then you can practice it on larger groups like all women, for instance, you know, uh, with the with the abortion law in Texas. Yeah, I was just thinking of um, I was relatively recently, like very adjacent to a carjacking. Um, and the person who had been carjacked ran down the block to me and my husband and wanted to call the police. Um and we didn't want to, but that was what he wanted. And it was this moment where I was like, what, what do we do in this circumstance where like, you know, there's a supposed to be, you know, in theory, the police are, um, a civil authority in actuality, they're descended from like sort of post civil war, like white patrols, like the clan, like they're, they're at least for me, like inextricable from this history. And that's the kind of thing that, that people want to erase and like, if you don't have sort of trust among civil society, like the breakdown of that kind of open communication, like when it turns from Jane Jacobs and kind of neighborhood, like friendly neighborhood watch into something else, then it just feels like you're really fucked. And like, I don't know, I'm of course, like, I don't know, like in Minneapolis, I'm, I would like the police to be abolished. Um, but when you think about 
like a, imagine a kid in the scenario that I'm describing or in another scenario, like the passage you read before, like Sadie is aware of pact related surveillance. And she's like really, she's one of my favorite characters. She's really ballsy. She's willing to risk it. And she's been separated from her parents. Um, and she doesn't trust any of the adults around her. She's functionally alone, which I think puts her in a kind of danger that not that many of the other characters are in. She's also like a young black girl. Um, like in a recent episode with Jean Kwok on child labor laws, for example, we were talking about how children migrating without their parents are uniquely vul- vulnerable to like labor exploitation. So I'm curious about how you thought about depicting the children's vulnerability in the book, how you chose the kinds of danger burden Sadie would face and, and how that connects to what we've been seeing in headlines, like kids who are kind of really more alone than they've ever been. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. Yeah, exactly as you were saying, Sugi. Um, Sadie in the book, um, Bird's Friend, she's about the same age she is. She's she's thirteen, and she doesn't have any adults around her that she can really trust. The teachers at school, um, some of them buy into the system more than others, but even the ones who maybe would want to help her are sort of limited in their capacity of what they can do because there are consequences for them if they put a foot out of line or if they're seen to be enabling something that's you know harmful. Um, So Sadie and Bird, between the two of them, I think, are approaching a similar issue, but they've got different resources and they've got different amounts of things to lose. Sadie, because she's already been taken away from her parents, uh, they were protesting the law quite openly. And that's that's the reason that she was taken from them and put into foster care. She doesn't know where they are and she doesn't have a lot to lose. And she's also, therefore, very acutely aware of how this law can be misapplied. Bird, on the other hand, is sort of, he's still holding on to the idea that maybe there's another way to do this, right? He's still got one of his parents. He still thinks in some ways, maybe there is a system that can protect him. It's like you were saying, Sugi, that idea that, you know, maybe, maybe this system can still help in the carjacking situation. Maybe it's, there's some way that it can be useful, right? We we would love in some ways to believe that there are systems that will protect us. But if you lose your faith in those systems, if you start to learn that actually they are not working the way that they're intended, well, I shouldn't say intended because maybe they're working exactly the way they're intended to work. They're not working in the way that you hope they would be working. Um, What do you do? And so Sadie in some ways is a role model for Bird. She's out there on her own doing this because she has to. And in a way, she provides a a model for Bird to kind of follow and say when he decides to go out into the broader world, I don't think that's too much of a spoiler for the book, he goes looking for his mother. He's thinking about her. And he's thinking about the ways that Sadie has had to be brave and the ways that he gets a choice about whether to try and be brave and he has to try and choose to to do those things. But they face very sort of, you know, you would say maybe the the, the most uh, disguised kind of levels of threats are sort of, you know, you can't read that. You can't do that. There's a little, you know, sort of public and teacher shaming of, you know, oh, you, you're so silly that you you don't believe in these things. Right. And it escalates to, you know, verbal abuse that Bird sees at one point. And then it escalates further to, you know, actual physical consequences of violence that he sees for other people or with Sadie being physically removed from her home. And I wanted to look at kind of the broad array of ways that this could affect kids in this society um, so that we can still kind of think about the ways that they could prepare themselves for that or maybe even try and push back against it. I was thinking your novel, which I really enjoyed, 
made me think a lot about Dickens because Dickens has child narrators who have a lot of agency and who are basically the one, they're often positioned as the ones who can see how poorly the societies function and how much the society is sort of broken and how the adults are all believing in, in Dickens' case, industrial era, you know, industrial revolution capitalism, which is a terrible system, you know, for them. And that, and then all the adults are always telling them, no, you don't understand. This is how things must be. And they, and they sort of push against that in, in novels like David Copperfield or, or Oliver Twist or Great Expectations. And then I thought, you know, it's been a long time since we've needed to have child narratives like that in, in American. I was thinking about like J.D. Salinger, like how soft, you know, Catcher in the Rye is comparatively. The guy's just upset that adults seem kind of fake. He's not facing the kinds of challenges. And that, you know, it has to do partly with who wrote the novel, although Salinger himself was Jewish. It's interesting that he sort of wrote outside of his own sort of group. But um, and and also that that we are generally in a, in a place where, uh, there is a consensus about a system that isn't working. I feel like your your novel is trying to get at that contemporary fact as well. It was very much. And, you know, choosing a, a child or I should say maybe early adolescent narrator was, was not an accident. Part of what I wanted, I said this a little bit earlier, but part of it is that um, Bird is 12. And so he's a child, but he's on the verge of becoming an adult. And he's starting to get that larger picture. I think that's a thing that for many of us, if we're lucky, starts to happen around that age. You know, if, you've, if you're lucky, you've gotten to be a child, right? And it's around that age that you start realizing, oh, there's there's more families and more ways of doing things out there than just my family. The way my family does things is not the only way. And the space that I'm in, my neighborhood or, you know, my city, whatever it is, actually, there's lots of other places out there and they're different from mine. And also there's a lot more history than I was, you know, than I was aware of. Again, if you're lucky enough to be taught that in school. And even with regard to your parents, you're like, oh, my parents, there's more to them than just being my parents. Maybe they have lives outside of me and maybe they have interests and they do things outside of me that aren't just about me. I think it's around this age that starts to happen. And I think it ties into what you were saying, Whitney, that, you know, that narrator is at a unique vantage point because it, a real child, a young child, I think, doesn't have enough context to see sort of what's going on and to, to see maybe the, the holes in the, the world around them and the ways that that system is failing. You know, they can't quite hear the creaking of the gears or things that are breaking. But I think when you get to be an adult, you have some investment, whether you like it or not, in that system, right? It becomes harder to disentangle yourself from it. It becomes harder to think of it as a thing that can change. It seems like something that's just always been there, you know? Well, that's how it is. We can't do anything about it. That's the way the world works. And so Bird is in that age where he's he's maybe still thinking that there's possibility, right? He's still believes that the world is changeable and malleable. And that felt like a really important moment because that's sort of the, the viewpoint that I'm trying to hold on to myself in <laughs> life in some ways. I mean, I mean, especially during the pandemic, you know, was we saw a number of problems, not just the pandemic, but we saw, you know, increases of child separations and we saw the Black Lives Matter movement. We saw all kinds of things. It felt like there were these huge problems. And what frustrated me was how many people were like, that's just the way it is. What are you going to do? And there was this sense of helplessness. And I started thinking, are, are we? Like, are we just kind of fucked? Like, 
I can say that on the podcast, right? <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. This is not gone on radio, so we can say you can you can excerpt that part out. Um, we'll have to, I, I, we have to restart the entire podcast from episode one if we're going to take out all this. <laughs> we just have to basically we would have this would have to be erased and put into the it's an anti-packed podcast is what we got going here. Well, this is, I mean, it's funny because I, so I have a, a adolescence age kid and, you know, swear words are entering his vocabulary. And I'm like, you know what? I'm kind of fine with that. I was like, they are an appropriate term to use sometimes when you need to express how you're feeling. I was like, you don't use them to hurt people, but like, there's a purpose to them, right? I, I feel like that ties into the same idea if we have to protect children from the swear words, but actually they're, there's value to them. Anyway, to go back. I was thinking about whether it's possible for us to change these huge systems. And I come down personally of thinking, like, we have to at least try. We have to believe that there is a possibility of change. Because if we don't, if we say, well, this is just how it is. The police have always been this way. There has always been a police force. We, there's nothing we can do. We can't possibly abolish them because they've always been there. Our choices basically are just to give up. Like, you know, and that that doesn't sit well with me. And especially when you're thinking about, you know, the next generation, you don't want to tell them, well, the world is just really fucked up. So just give up now. You know, no one no one wants to give that view to their kids. I have gotten derailed by my little side rant on swearing. (laughs) I want to add one, just put one thing in. And then you should probably ask that question about librarians. But the one thing that I also was thinking about is like. And I don't know if this will provide hope or not, but when I was young, my, uh, growing up, the the my you know my family was involved was very religious, and and I saw a bit of the evangelical movement, which is now sort of very pro DeSantis, pro Trump, pro authoritarian playbook ideas. But at that time, they evangelicals and right wing people really hated the Soviet Union and the idea of authoritarianism, and constantly trumpeted freedom of speech, freedom of libraries, and talked all the time about how you could get whatever you goods you wanted, you could read whatever books you wanted in America. There was that tradition on both sides of the aisle, at least in rhetoric, right? Maybe not in fact, that existed. And um, I don't know how, why, or I, I actually have lots of theories about why we've gotten derailed from that on the right, but that is still a tradition in American life. And we were talking about it and believing in it, that we are not an authoritarian country. We act that way, as Sugi points out frequently to me, but we still have that tradition and we have that past to look back on and, and use to support ourselves going forward. Anyway, and I think um, one of the places that that is, you can kind of see that optimism, um, the kind of flicker of subversiveness and rebellion actually in your book, despite the, the unspoken book bans, um, are libraries. Librarians are a key resource for Bird. They are adults he trusts. They're adults actually that Sadie trusts as well. And uh, they have, this is not a huge spoiler because it's somewhat early in the novel, they have an underground network to help children who have been removed from their families like Sadie and who are trying to find their way back to their parents. And we're at a moment when school and public libraries are under really unique attack, not just through book bans, but through like reshaping their actual purpose. Like recently, I'm so pissed off about this headline um, that some school I know libraries what you're going to say. Yeah. yeah, the school libraries in Houston. And of course, they're in like under-resourced areas with underrepresented mm-hmm. minorities. And they're turning the school libraries into discipline centers. Yeah. Um, when of course, like, I mean, who's going to be in there? Um, like, who are they going to prevent from being in class? And, and also, they won't be able to really access the resources of a library. Uh, so I'm curious in the book how you found your way to that particular shape, the network of librarians, 
as a resistance movement and maybe also your thoughts on how we can support libraries now because that was total fucking bullshit. I am so glad you mentioned that story because that story made me so furious when I heard it earlier this week. It's like, it's not bad enough that you're taking away the library, but you're also making it into a discipline center. It's like, you know, you're not, you're just, it's like adding insult to injury on top of things. Um, In the book, I started thinking a lot about who might be pushing back? Because for me, this was a book that was trying to come out of hope. It wasn't just like, let's look at how bad things are, but look at ways that, you know, this is this is super cheesy, but I grew up with Mr. Rogers, and there's that thing that comes up every time there's a horrible disaster, but it's I think it's a useful piece of advice where Mr. Rogers says, you know, you have to look for the helpers. In some ways, that to me is saying you have to believe that there are people out there who are trying to help, right? And in some ways, that maybe can inspire you to do something. So I was thinking, who who's helping in this world? And I realized that the librarians were a natural group of people. Um, they were looking for information. And they're trying to keep the information of where these kids are going, who's missing, try to match up who the kids are, you know, where they've ended up. And that really came about because um, because I have this huge admiration for librarians. Um, I live in Cambridge, as I said, and I used to take my laptop to the Cambridge Public Library and I would sit there to write and, you know, eavesdrop on people and look at books and things like that. And I would sit by the reference desk and I would hear these librarians helping patrons and the extent to which they were willing to go to help people find whatever information they were looking for was truly extraordinary. Um, You know, people come in and they're like, I need to file my taxes and I have never done this. I have no idea where to start. And the librarian's like, okay, let's go over here. I'll help you find the form. I'll help you do this, right? Um, I hadn't really thought about librarians as people who could help you figure out what tax form to use, but they know, right? Um, People would come in and say, well, I want to learn Spanish, and they'll help them find resources for that. Um, But there were also cases where there was one time I heard a librarian on the phone with a patron and was very painstakingly explaining to this patron how to use Google Maps to look up an address. And it, it, it was there were a number of hang-ups. I think the other person was not super used to using a computer or was having technical difficulties. And so this went on for about 20 minutes, um, long enough that I typed in the address just to see where the address was. And it was like nine blocks away from where this person was. And um, it, it ended with the librarian saying, you know, I've got the information right here. Would you like me to just read it to you? You could just write it down on a piece of paper and then you can get where you're going. And that's what they did. And this is sort of a silly example, but it just struck me that, you know, the library is free. The library is one of the few sort of public goods that we have. And it's, um, I've always been sort of thinking like, I hope that like conservative people don't kind of figure out how good it is because they're going to want to take it away. It's amazing that, and, and they have, unfortunately, you know, you think about it, it's open to everybody. Its sole purpose is to help you find the information that you want to have, right? And it's based on the idea that information should be available to you and that we should hold on to knowledge and keep it and then take it out when we need it, right? And going to work at the public library, you see how many different people use it for different things. Um, it's, ours is right next to the high school. And so you see the high schoolers come in and they're kind of eating their lunch and they're kind of flirting, but they're also reading and they're looking for stuff that they're interested in. Um, you see people who come in because they don't have a computer at home and they want to use the internet and they use the computer there. You see people who are unhoused and they just need a place to get warm and to sit for a while and they're welcome, right? And the library, at least here, thinks of them as part of the community that they're serving. And there's not a lot of institutions 
organizations that are like that, that you can go to for free and they say, you're allowed to be here just because you live here. You're part of the community. So when I was thinking about who in this world of the novel would really be trying to serve this community and trying to grab that information and hold it, the librarians were sort of the obvious choice. And then I had the fun also of getting to think about ways that librarians who are like scarily smart, if you ever talk to any of them, they have so much information in their brains, the ways that they might use their wiles to work around systems that were, you know, intending to keep information from people. I think that to go to the second part of your question, Sugi, the the ways that we can help libraries and librarians now is first of all, by talking about this issue and by talking about how many things the library does for everybody. Um, I think a lot of people think of it as just the place where you go to get books, but actually it is the place where you go to research stuff. It's a place of um, learning different skills. It's a meeting point. It serves all kinds of community functions that I think a lot of people don't actually recognize until they're taken away. Um, and then I think the other thing that we can do to support libraries and librarians is to show up on their behalf. Um, I've seen a couple of you know videos of town meetings where the library is going to get cut or people are, you know, threatening libraries or threatening librarians in particular, and people show up to be with them to say, like, we're, we're here and we don't support this, right? I feel like um, not making them fight this fight alone uh, feels really important. It's not, it's not a fight between librarians and the people who want to shut them down. It's a fight for all, between all of us. And the people who want to shut libraries down because they really are our institutions. Yeah, I mean, libraries are truly a democratic institution, as we were talking about before. And I totally agree with you. When you see people attacking democratic institutions, they're doing it for a reason. I want to shout out my friends at the Kansas City Public Library, who I work with every day. And we have a book award, the Maya Angelou Book Award that we've created together, along with other universities in Missouri. And we do the Writers for Readers event, which Sugi's been a part of. So... I enjoyed that, and they they also are going to be are huge fans of your work. Um, so thank you for joining us, Celeste, and listeners. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Our Missing Hearts, which is out now in paperback. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!